This episode of Dopey is brought to you by our friends at Oro Recovery. Oro is located in Western Los Angeles in Malibu. It was created by Bob Forrest and his friends, Evan, Jared, and the other Bob. Their mission? To create a treatment center that wields compassion and connection rather than control. Everyone that I've known that has been to Oro only says beautiful things, that they are treated with kindness, they are treated with respect, they are treated with dignity. Their staff has decades of experience in treating co-occurring mental health disorders. Over and over again, they are ranked in the top five facilities that experts would send anyone to. If you're fucked and you want to go to sunny Southern California to get well, I cannot suggest going to Oro enough. They have amenities you wouldn't believe. Sound bath meditation, yoga, equine therapy, surfing, and of course, the potentially spiritually transformative sweat lodge. If you're kicking and you need to go to detox, the detox they have is as comfortable as it gets. So again, if you're fucked and you're willing to go to sunny Southern California to get help, I cannot suggest going to Oro enough. Check them out at ororecovery.com. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by our very good friends at Sober Buddy. What is Sober Buddy? Sober Buddy is an app on your phone to help you stay sober, but Sober Buddy is also a community. It is a community of people who help each other get and stay sober. If you want Sober Buddy, go to the App Store or the Google Play Store. We just did a Zoom on you know, staying sober for Thanksgiving and strategies. We're about to do another Zoom about cravings. Check out Sober Buddy. It is first seven days free. There's also a free sober tracker in the app so you can tell your friends how much time you got, which is great. Join the Your Sober Buddy community. Go to YourSoberBuddy.com. Go get it at the App Store or the Google Play Store. I'm at the Zoom. I use the app like every day. So check out Sober Buddy when you can. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by our very good friends at Soberlink. We need to talk about alcohol recovery in the workplace. Talking about sobriety and proving it to your employer can be so difficult, and our friends at Soberlink want to help. If you need a reliable way to present documented proof of sobriety to a boss or a loved one, Soberlink can help. Soberlink is a high-tech portable breathalyzer system that uses facial recognition technology to verify identity. It has unique sensors to ensure that no other air sources are being used, and it sends results directly to your specified contacts. So there's no questioning whether or not you took the test and whether or not you altered the reporting. This is why Soberlink's remote alcohol monitoring system is considered the gold standard. Being in recovery from alcohol does not define the future of your career. Let Soberlink help. Learn more about Soberlink and request an exclusive 50 bucks off promo code by visiting www.soberlink.com dopey. That's www.soberlink.com dopey. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by our very, very good friends at Evolution Accounting and Consulting. Are you a dreamer? Are you an entrepreneur? Do you have a business? Do you need accounting help? If any of those things are true, check out our friend at evolutionaccountingandconsulting.com. They are a full-service accounting firm that can help you take care of everything 
bookkeeping, taxes, payroll, whatever you need, they can accomplish. The best thing about them is that they allow you to pursue your creative vision while they take care of the rest. They are run by somebody like us, a crackhead in recovery, but he's got plenty of time so he understands the struggle as well as the success. Check them out at www.evolution-accounting.com. Use the promo code DOPEY and receive special discounts. Check them out at www.evolution-accounting.com. Again, use the DOPEY code to receive special discounts. This episode of DOPEY is brought to you by our very good friends at Pink Cloud. What is Pink Cloud? Pink Cloud is a sobriety app. It is basically your companion that connects you to over 250,000 meetings worldwide. Pink Cloud is free. It has a feature that tracks your sober time and makes sure you can work your program in privacy. Your data stays on your phone and will not be sent or stored or shared with anyone else. They feature multiple programs of recovery featuring, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, Crystal Meth Anonymous, Al-Anon, Alateen. There's over 24,000 online meetings with one-click join options for Zoom meetings. Pink Cloud is an amazing program. It is free. It can help you. Go to gopinkcloud.com and get the free help right there. Fucking free help. Who can say no to that? Enough with the ads. Now here is the show. Welcome to Dopey, the podcast on drugs, addiction, and dumb shit. And my name is Dave, and I hope you guys had a great Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving was yesterday, which means it is Friday right now, and the episode is about to come out, which is the best way to do it. We had a killer Thanksgiving. We had my dad. We had Linda's parents. We had Linda, the kids, uh, Linda's brother, Linda's brother's friend, Robert, this English British theater director who had shoes that had the British flag on them and a Mini Cooper that was also dressed up with the Union Jack, like Austin Powers, you know, it was fantastic. We cooked a feast. I was responsible for the mashed potatoes. And Linda's mother, God bless her, was like, Dave, do you have a recipe for the mashed potatoes? And I said, no, no, I, I don't worry, I'll be fine. And Linda's like, Dave... Why don't you get a recipe for the mashed potatoes? And uh, that's a terrible version of the way they talk. And she's like, you're going to use milk? Are you going to use cream? And I said, I'm, not, I'm just going to use butter. I'm going to use butter and sour cream. And they were like, Dave, that's not how you make mashed potatoes. Anyway, so it was 12 people. And, and, and I, I'm getting ready to make the mashed potatoes. And I start peeling the potatoes when I realize having a plan would be a good move. And... I, I kind of talked to her brother, and then I bust out Google, and Google instructs me that I do indeed need milk and butter. And Google tells me I found a really good mashed potato recipe from the New York Times, and they suggested garlic, and we put some garlic. We infused the milk and butter and cream with garlic, and the mashed potatoes were sick, fucking delicious. I had to use this ricer machine to 
you know, I'm doing it with my hand now. You kind of like churn the potatoes into silkiness, and I mashed them with the masher, and I stirred it with the spoon, and they were epically delicious potatoes. And we ate, and we had a good time. We talked, and, and Ray was a big hit at the table. Everybody loves Ray Brown. And then I walked Ray and my dad to the train when I noticed that my mother-in-law, and I, I'm sure... A lot of you guys remember my mother-in-law on the show. She was incredible on the show. She also famously steals food from our house, takes chicken cutlets when Linda was in the hospital having Susan, takes cookies every time she comes over, and this time she parked her car in front of our driveway. And this was not the first time she parked her car in front of our driveway, blocking the cars in the driveway. Not good. But I didn't want to make a thing about it, so I just didn't say anything. I walk the dog with with uh, Ray and my dad to the train, and I come back. The car's still in front of the house. I go to put Susan to bed. I fall asleep, and around 10 o'clock, Linda wakes me up. Her mom lost her keys, and the car stayed in front of the driveway, blocked the other cars in. The other cars had to drive off the driveway onto the grass to get out. We never found the key. Today, she found a spare key. I love Linda's mother, but why would you block? Why are you parking in front of the driveway? Never park in front of the driveway. It's got to be some kind of rule. But I am incredibly grateful for Linda's mother. I'm incredibly grateful to be sober for Thanksgiving. I'm incredibly grateful for you guys. Uh, I used to love to get wasted at Thanksgiving. I used to love to get I, my my better memory is like having Thanksgiving and then getting wasted after Thanksgiving. And that was a million years ago. And then there were many years of getting wasted before Thanksgiving. And that was always a mess. I would get, I, that, those were the angry years. And my family would be very, like they would, they wouldn't know that I was on heroin, but they would know there was something wrong with me because I would fight with everybody during dinner. And then there were the years in California when I would go to my girlfriend's family's house just way too high and nobody knew anything. I wouldn't fight with anybody. I would just sit there high and eat, but I'm very grateful to be sober at Thanksgiving. I'm very grateful for my family. I'm very grateful for you guys. There's a dopey nation zoom marathon right now. If you're interested in the dopey nation zoom, the zoom address is, I should always get the zoom address before I start saying this fucking thing. But here we go. The, you can go right now. The Zoom address is 804-300-586. The password is toodles, all lowercase. Join the Dopey Nation Facebook group. Join, uh, Follow us on Facebook. Follow us on Instagram. But more importantly, follow Dopey Patreon. Sign up for two bucks. You get a ton of content. Oh my God, I just found a treasure trove of old videos of my old show, Shuffle. I just posted this, this uh, segment where I went to this old New York City club called SOBs, and they had an Indian music night called Bangra, Basement Bangra. And I'm wasted, but you, you hear a lot of cool music, and you see me all wasted talking to a bunch of beautiful Indian people. So for two bucks on Patreon, you get a ton of Patreon shit. Ray was on Patreon this week. Super funny. Um, I have a ton of videos that I'm going to be posting. And next week, I'm going to post the MC Search 
Opus on Patreon. Join Patreon. For two bucks, you get the content. For five bucks, you get into the Patreon Zoom. This Sunday, we're doing the Patreon Zoom at 9 o'clock Eastern Standard Time. Uh, what else do you get? 10 bucks, you get stickers. 15 bucks, you get socks. There's no unhappy Patreon members. Join Dopey Patreon. Support the show. Help get me out of fucking Katz's. That would be that would be the dream. Last month, we had uh, that ketamine show. The ketamine doctors were on Patreon, and we put them on a, a Tuesday bonus show. I'm not sure who listened, but that was two days ago. We put the ketamine doctors on, and I heard a bunch of response. I want to read some of the response I heard about the ketamine show. Here we go. First one said, Hey, bud, was just listening to a couple of your recent podcasts and wanted to mention about ketamine. The antidepressant effects are totally pharmacological and don't require a therapeutic environment. The real problem with street consumers trying to replicate the therapeutic environment are A, they, they're cut with fake drugs, well, often research chemicals made to replicate the ketamine, or B, the users don't stop using. The antidepressant effect feels much like a healthy manic cycle. I have theories it has to do with its relativity to PCP, but only really hits when you put the drug down. And many ketamine users tend to binge versus using it in healthy ways. Thought you might find this information interesting. I do. Here's a second note about the ketamine episode. Man, I am halfway through this ketamine bonus episode, and this shit is really intense that I had to drop you a message. I as well nearly fucked up my family with my habit, almost losing everything. That actually says almost losing everything I love and need. And this episode is triggering me on different episodes. It's so great and so scary at the same time. Best regards from Bavaria, Germany, Julian. I love that he wrote from Bavaria. I'm sure the, the pretzels, the Bavarian pretzels are killer in Bavaria. So thank you for dropping the note. Are the pretzels in Bavaria as good as they say? Let us know. Write a dopey email to us at dopeypodcast or at gmail.com or send in a dopey voicemail. We love the dopey voicemail. I'm going to play two of them on the show today. Today on the show, we have Jessica Leahy. She is a brilliant writer. She is a, a parenting expert. She's an alcoholic in recovery, and she is brilliant and a great talker. But before we get to Jess, and, and I have a great fucking ecstasy parenting voicemail, but before we get to that, I just want to tell you guys that this episode of Dopey is brought to you by another app. The Sober Together app. It is different than the other apps we talk about. It's amazing. It lets you post a video check-in. And once you put in the video check-in, it can be how you're doing, how you're progressing, you're struggling, or you can share a dopey story from your past or just some funny, you know, sobriety log. And the thing is, after you post it, you can receive video replies to your check-in from others in recovery from all over the world. And then you get to meet people and go back and forth. It's incredible. It's like a Facebook comment thread, but you actually have face-to-face -face video or audio conversations. I actually just signed up for this thing. I'm going to do my first message as soon as I'm done doing this show. And you guys can write me 
Sober Together is available on the App Store. And it's like if you don't want to go to a meeting, if you don't want to participate in a Zoom, if you're shy, if your schedule doesn't permit, you can just leave a message on the Sober Together app and people respond. So check it out. Again, just in the App Store, it's called Sober Together. And again, I will post something now. So please go see my post and react to it and we'll interact. It'll be amazing. That's Sober Together. Now, I want to play you this voicemail. The voicemail is from a woman in San Francisco named Suki. Suki also wrote a memoir that should be coming out soon. Uh, here's Suki's parenting ecstasy debacle. Hey, Dave. Hey, Dopey Nation. This is Suki in San Francisco, and I have a story for you. Many years ago, when I was still actively using my kids, who are now college age, were involved in soccer. We were living in Oakland at the time, but they were um, going to preschool and kindergarten in uh, Lafayette, which is a more affluent uh, city on the other side of the Oakland Hills. So uh, I think it was my daughter had a soccer game and my ex-husband, or he was going to be my ex-husband, we were in the process of a divorce, had taken the kids to my daughter's game. And I had decided that it would be a good idea for me to do ecstasy before I went to the game. Um, yeah, that was a smart choice because we were involved in a custody battle and I didn't want him to know that I was using, but Somehow I thought that I could get through the game easier um, if I was loaded, because that's junky logic. So uh, I did, I had done, I had, I think, smoked some heroin and done maybe like one hit of ecstasy and went to the game and my eye, you know, my pupils are fucking the size of saucers. So I show up and then people are like, I feel like at least that people are looking at, we at me weird. So I'm trying to, I'm telling people um, that I just had my eyes dilated and that I'd been at the eye doctor. And I started to feel really uncomfortable. So I decided toward the end of the game that I would just leave. So I really awkwardly like you know said goodbye to people and and I I leave and I start to I start to drive away and I had a bag of baby carrots in the car and I decide that I'm going to eat these baby carrots while I'm while I'm driving back home to Oakland so I'm chewing on these baby carrots and as I'm driving I'm like really getting into like the sensation of the carrots and I get into my head and I I start to trip out that I don't know how to chew and swallow these baby carrots. <laughs> so I begin to choke on the baby carrots. Like I am tripping out that I cannot I can't I cannot figure out how to how to swallow the carrots. So um so I'm choking on carrots and I'm driving and I like pull over to the side of the road and I'm like using the steering wheel to like kind of Heimlich myself because now I've got like 
carrot chunk like lodged in my throat. And I like spit out all these carrots. And then like now that I've started to spit out these carrots, now I'm, I've like somehow like triggered my gag reflex. And so I feel like I'm going to throw up. So I get out of the car and I start puking like all over the side of the road. And I'm still in this, in this, um, like this very quaint little like suburban Bay Area town, like throwing up on the side of the road. And and I've got like puke like in my hair and all over me now. And as I look up, I see one of those soccer moms like in her minivan like drive by and she like slows down and looks at me and just like waves at me. <laughs> and I was like, I was so embarrassed. Um, so yeah, that's my story. And she asked me about it the next time I saw her and I don't even remember what I said to her, but, um, yeah, don't, don't eat baby carrots if you're too high to chew them and remember that you need to swallow them. Toodles. That is a great lesson from Suki in San Francisco. My favorite part, for some reason, is giving yourself the Heimlich maneuver with the steering wheel. So just know that if you are choking, that maybe you could give yourself the Heimlich maneuver with the steering wheel. That That's just a, an exciting idea to me. And tripping ecstasy and going to your kid's uh, soccer game is never the move. If you're taking ecstasy, just have another, another responsible adult go get your... Uh, your kid for you. And this, you know, in other related news, this episode of Dopey is brought to you by BetterHelp.com. BetterHelp Online Therapy. It would be nice if life had a user's manual for, like, how to give the Heimlich maneuver when you're driving on the steering wheel or how to, you know, pick up your child when you're on ecstasy or how to make the right decision, how to do the next right thing. And whether or not you've been in therapy personally, therapy's helpful. I actually just did online therapy with a new therapist, and we talked about what kind of person do I want to be. And that is not a question I don't think I've ever asked myself. And my online therapist asked me that question, and it's an exciting idea. And I'm going to consider that question until our next therapy session. And when I have an owner's manual, I don't read it. And if I do read it, I don't understand any of it. Therapy can help you do so many things. It can help you deal with trauma. It can help you learn coping skills, self-empowerment. I have been so bettered by therapy and so can you. BetterHelp.com is the world's largest therapy service. BetterHelp has matched over 3 million people with professionally licensed and vetted therapists, and they're available 100% online. It is also affordable. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to match with a therapist. If things aren't clicking, you can easily switch to a new therapist anytime. It could not be simpler. No waiting rooms, no traffic, no endless searching for the right therapist. Learn more and save 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash dopeypodcast. That's betterhelp.com slash dopeypodcast. I cannot suggest uh, therapy enough, and BetterHelp is an incredible tool for that. So now we get to the meat of the show. 
Jessica Leahy is a brilliant writer. She's a teacher. She's an alcoholic in recovery, and she is on the show. And I'm in my dad's apartment with a very, very important writer, and, and her book has been in my house for years. Her name is Jessica Leahy. I'm going to read the thing. Because Tim Ferriss read the thing and it sounded really good. <laughs> okay. I was like, thing. Tim Ferriss sounds like a genius, but then I just found the thing that he read. Okay. Here we go. Jessica Leahy is the author of the New York Times bestselling book, The Gift of Failure, How the Best Parents Learn to Let Go So Their Children Can Succeed, and The Addiction Inoculation, Raising Healthy Kids in a Culture of Dependence. Over 20 years, Jess has taught every grade from 6th to 12th in both public and private schools and spent five years teaching in a drug and alcohol rehab for adolescents in Vermont and serves as a prevention and recovery coach at SANA, a medical detox and recovery center in Stowe, Vermont. She has written about education, parenting, and child welfare for the Washington Post, the Atlantic, and her bi-weekly column, the parent-teacher conference ran for three years at the New York Times. She designed and wrote the educational curriculum for Amazon Kids' award-winning animated series, The Stinky and Dirty Show, and was a 2019 Pushcart Prize nominee. Jess holds the dubious honor of having written an article that was later adapted as a writing prompt for the 2018 SAT. True story. She co-hosts the Hashtag MWriting podcast from her empty nest in Vermont. Well, that's the biggest <laughs> intro we ever had. Welcome. See, the key is you make a big, long introduction and then you let people give people permission to slice and dice it because oh, oh you have permission like well yeah because if i'm speaking at an elementary school you know they don't care about a whole chunk of it but they love the stinky and dirty stuff whereas i'm speaking at like a hoity-toity private school they care that i went to law school even though i never practiced law so you know you, you slice and dice and the one thing that isn't on there that our audience cares is you're an alcoholic in recovery i am i am nine and a half years welcome in recovery thank you congratulations Mazel thank tough. you thank you and and you work in treatment. So, so we've had the gift of failure lying around. And, uh, and my beautiful partner is always quoting, you know, she's texting me quotes from the gift of failure, Aww, talking it up. makes me so happy. And I was thinking about it, like, because I'm a very in involved parent, and I'm thinking, like, the gift of failure. Like, I, I, I think I allow my kids to fail, and I think... I failed so much as a kid mm -hmm. and I don't, and I guess my parents allowed it. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, it, but, but, but at the same time they tried to, they, they didn't want me to fail. Right. Of course. And I, I feel like they definitely didn't leave me to my own devices though. I, I'm, I'm always looking for ways to blame them for my addiction. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So, you know, I've got, it's easy for me. I just have genetics. I mean, you know, for me, genetics was in the big picture. It's a miracle anyone escapes sort of substance use disorder in my family. So my sister got lucky. My husband got lucky. But both sides of our family are just chock full of alcoholics and addicts. Yeah. So give, give us the, the genealogy of addiction in your family. Just Lots of it all through both sides, one of my parents, you know, and, and in writing the addiction inoculation, the first thing that I was trying to figure out when I got sober was, okay, well, how do I make this stop with me? You know, if I'm the kid of an alcoholic and one of my parents is the kid of an alcoholic and so on and so on and so on, how do I end this with me? And I just wanted a really good source of prevention science and sort of parenting and education best practices. 
The addiction inoculation caught me off guard mm-hmm. because I was very much like, there's no such thing. <laughs> it's impossible. Why, you know, what's even the point of, of doing it? Cause that's where my brain goes. And then I read it and I was like, wow, there's so much stuff in here that can be so useful. But then again, my cynic is like, well, if a parent does, and it's impossible mm-hmm. right. to do everything that's suggested in that book, right. but if you're a parent out there and you're an addict in recovery or an alcoholic in recovery, you should check out the addiction and inoculation. I, I mean, I, you know, I have two kids and I wrote the book on this stuff and I can't guarantee that my kids won't end up having a problem with substances. But the cool thing, the way I always think about getting to a place where you know you need help and you actually go and get help when you're an addict is it's sort of like a 100 piece puzzle. And, you know, for me, I got really lucky. My dad was my 100th piece, but there had to be, you know, those 99 pieces before my dad was that 100th piece. And I think of a lot of the prevention as being some of those pieces as well. So even if we can't prevent all of our kids from, you know, just ending up with substance use disorder, at the very least, we can put more of those pieces of of the puzzle in place so that maybe they, you know, when they start using heavily, they're at, you know, piece 52 instead of like piece four. So hopefully they can get to a place where they know they need help sooner. You know that saying, you know, once you've been in the rooms for a while and you go out, it's not really as much fun anymore because you just have too much information in your head. And I'm perfectly fine with harshing my kids' buzz with a lot of information so that it's just not quite as much fun as it might have been. Right, right. I mean, I've my my older child is twelve. Mm-hmm. You know, if if you go to a meeting, how many stories start at twelve or ten? Mm-hmm. You're right. I mean, you were talking about Aaron, Aaron Carr, like she started at eight or something yeah. crazy. Yeah. And I, I, every couple months, I say to her, I said, "Is anyone drinking? Mm-hmm. You know, is anyone is anyone doing anything?" And it seems like none of them are doing anything. I have a very uh, I, I feel like I have a very good connection with her mm-hmm. and she's very usually honest and forthright with me as far as I can tell. It seems like the telephone is preventing them from drinking or having sex or doing drugs. Have you noticed that? Uh, how so? How do you think it's keeping them from doing those? Things? I don't have a really defined hypothesis, <laughs> um, but I just think that they're so caught up with aspects of the phone, texting, social media, video games, and I have a, a neighbor who has a son who's a little bit older, and he's like in his kid's shit, like in his computer and mm-hmm. his phone, and he's like, he's not doing anything. Mm-hmm. And then I have somebody else who they're they're all these parents are very like tracking their kids yeah. and watching everything they do. And I I wouldn't do that kind yeah. of stuff because it just goes against my grain. I don't wanna be I don't wanna ruin their their privacy yeah i think a lot i think about it a lot as you know reading a kids texts or reading their emails is a lot like you know when we were little and you know that kid that we had the crush on would call and you'd be freaking out and then like you'd hear a little click and you knew it was someone on the other like in the guest room or something and it was your sister or you're like horrible. You're, it's a horrible and it's that's the same thing as listening in you know from my perspective anyway and so the rule in our house has always been don't read texts, don't read emails, but that is subject to change at any time. If I feel like you're in danger, if I feel like you're in a situation where you're not safe, that could change. But as someone who, you know, wrote The Gift of Failure and talks about having more conversations instead of doing so much of the surveillance and the control, because, and not for nothing, but we know 
the kids who are more heavily controlled by their parents lie to their parents more. So Oh, I, I live to lie. <laughs> when I was a child, like when I would bring a friend home, he would be like, I don't I don't talk because I have no idea what you're gonna say to your parents. That's really funny. Well, actually one of the unintended consequences of parents reading their kids' texts, I was talking to this girl and she had been booted out of her friend's little group text circle, but with no explanation. I guess their theory was they didn't want to hurt her feelings. Of course, not telling her hurt her feelings even worse. But we got mm. to the bottom of it, and it turns out that the reason they booted her from the text group is that they didn't want that girl's mom reading all of their texts, and they know that her mom reads their texts. Right. And so, you know, this poor mom was devastated that her daughter was devastated by the loss of all of her friends and not being included, and yet the mom was the very reason. So, and I'm not saying you can never read their texts. I'm not saying you can never use Find My iPhone to know where they are, but we have to find some kind of balance that establishes some kind of, you know, trust and ability to communicate as opposed to surveillance. But as a professional, the first question was, or my, mm -hmm. my question was, are children doing less drugs, alcohol, and sex because they do so much iPhone? I think it would be impossible to to create a causative sort of relationship. We could correlate those things. We could say, okay, well, this is happening and therefore, because we do know that, you know, pre-pandemic drug and alcohol use among kids younger than 18 was in a steady decline. It plateaued slightly before COVID and has, you know, it's still plateaued for some things. Cannabis, it's up. Other things, it's gone down. You know, 18 to 30 cannabis and psychedelics are way up. I think overall, we're getting better at evidence-based substance use prevention. Did you say 1830? 18 to 30. Okay. Yeah, in 18 to 30, psychedelic use in cannabis is up. But vaping is up slightly for kids, uh, or well, not just slightly, it's up significantly for kids. But in for the most part, over the past 15 years, decade or so, drug and alcohol use among kids younger than 18 has been going down. So that's good. Yeah, it's great. We just want to keep the trend going in the right direction. Absolutely. I want to hear about your alcoholism for a second. Okay. When did you know you were an alcoholic? You know, it's all, oh, everyone always says this. It's so hard to pinpoint the moment that it slipped out of my control, but I had an alcoholic parent and I knew the one thing I never wanted to be was like them, right? So I went all the way to the abstinent end. Like I occasionally drank when I was in high school, at the beginning of college, wasn't really into drugs, so thought I was doing great. And then I had kids. I had my first kid when I was 28 and my next kid when I was 33. And that was really where the slide started. I think, you know, it's, it's hard to be home with little kids. And I, you know, at the same time, my husband is a physician and he's out there like saving people's lives and I'm home, you know, making sure the baby doesn't choke to death on stuff. And Which is very important. Yes, but at the time, you know, I just, I had done some really cool things before I had babies. Well, you guys were very Huxtable-esque. He's a doctor, <laughs> you're a lawyer. So I was going to work in juvenile court. That was like the plan. That's why I went to law school. And then I was asked to teach a class to sort of really bright middle school kids. Oh my gosh, I fell so in love. And so I finished law school, but I never practiced law. See, my parents are both teachers. They're like my uncles and my aunts are all board of ed people. Nice. Like I grew up in a world of teachers and not a teacher in my life paid any attention to me <laughs> in my whole fucking career of school. So when you are home with the kids and you're, I mean, I don't want to say bored, but you're not. I was bored. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I, I loved being a mom, but I was also, you know, yeah. 
that my house was very clean. Let's just put it that way. Cause I just was looking for projects. Right. But that's great. I, yeah. I, I mean, you've, you're very hardworking, very, very, you know, you do so many things. I, I, I enjoy even just sitting with you because I know all these places you're going and all these things that you're doing. It's really exciting to me. So when, when do you feel like this is out of control and you need to change something? I think, so we were living right behind a Trader Joe's in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and was where it started to pick up because, you know, there's two buck chuck right across the way, right? Super easy. And, you know, I would sort of pregame before my husband would get home so that I wouldn't be nervous about how much wine there was with dinner, that kind of thing. And then we moved and, you know, it just crept up in the way that it creeps up. You know, I can't really point to a moment where I'm like, oh yeah, that's the moment. But I do know that I was doing some really weird rituals and how to hide it and where to hide it and crossing all kinds of lines and doing all the stuff that, you know, you hear about in recovery. Where would you hide? So I would hide in a mason jars in the freezer and then say, oh, well, I'm not going to drink that. If it freezes, I won't drink it. But then you just end up drinking a slushie. Um, I would hide in the garage. I would hide. I would, I obviously, we had a very, very small house. So I would leave the house to barf. I had a lot of gardens. So I would leave the house to throw up because you couldn't really throw up and not be detected in the house. And we lived in the country. It just, it was gross. It was all messy and gross. And it required so much of my energy. Plus, I always had to do the recycling. Always. I hate doing the recycling, but no one else could do it because you couldn't see what was in there, you know. All the bottles. Yeah. Yes. Plus, I have, a, I have a very observant husband who prides himself on that. And also, we know that we both are genetically loaded for this. So we kind of keep an eye on each other. So... I had to be super duper secret. And did you drink with him before the end? You know, I would, well, I was always drunk before I drank with him. You know, as far as he knew, I was just having a glass of wine with dinner. But yeah, and since then, now we don't keep open alcohol in the house anymore. If he wants a beer, he can have a beer and then he gets a single and pours out whatever he doesn't drink or something like that. But we used to drink in the house, yeah. He doesn't keep anything open because you don't want it. You know, what it never occurred to me that it would be a problem for me, but I'm so relieved that it's not even something I have to think about. It's one of those things where I don't know that I'd be tempted, but I also know that I would know that it was there and it would be something I'd have to spend mental energy thinking about. So it's just easier for me to not have to think about it. And it models, you know, being empathetic in a relationship for my kids so they can see, oh, you know, we don't keep open alcohol in the house because dad's just trying to help mom, you know, be healthy in her head and not have to think about it. And that's another potential, like, addition to inoculating them in general. Yeah. It's something in their brain. Yeah, and actually, just so we're clear, the word inoculation doesn't, it's not, there's not like a, you know, a vaccine, that kind of thing. It comes from a school of sociology called inoculation theory, which really is just good refusal skills for kids, giving kids really good refusal skills so that when they come up against the real thing, like you give your body a, vi a, a vaccine so that when it comes up against the real virus, it's prepared to fight back. And it's the same thing with inoculation theory for kids. So you give them bits of it so that they are prepared to yeah, use it. Yeah, you give it. them good information. You give them, like, for example, let's say a kid is in eighth grade and they're offered a beer. And, you know, the other kid pulls the classic, you know, oh, it's no big deal. Everybody does it. If your eighth grader knows that that's just not true, that less than 27% of 
kids in eighth grade admit to having had even more than a sip of alcohol by the end of eighth grade, your eighth grader doesn't have to say, oh, no, that's not true, blah, 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 blah. But at least in their head, they have good, solid information to know, oh, that's BS. I call BS on that, and I don't have to say yes if I don't want to. That's sort of part of giving kids good information, helping them have refusal skills. I, I mean, I went to this ridiculously good public school in mm-hmm. Manhattan, and I and there was no dare or anything like that, but I think it was understood, you know, that you could say no to peer pressure. I feel like where I grew up, there was enough positive reinforcement of doing the right thing that I had all of that in me, but still I was like, fuck that. Yeah. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah, yeah. It's, I was a goody two-shoes, always the designated driver, but I so desperately wanted to be liked that, you know, I absolutely went against, you know, even the goody two shoes who was always the designated driver. I drank and got drunk occasionally just because I was, you know, I, I wanted to be liked by the people who were doing all of that. Yeah. I would say my addiction started with wanting to be liked, but very, very quickly became, I don't want to think anymore. I don't want to yeah. be up here. Yeah. How hard was it for you to go from, to get sober? I got so lucky. I have, you know, I hate all the terminology. I have high bottom, right, you know, right. blah, you spill, I spilled more than you drank. Right, BS, right, right. Um, Which puts me in the position of. Wait, what's that one mean? I spilled more. Oh, because oh, you yeah, drank so yeah, much. I, right, I, okay, I okay, drank yeah, so little yeah. that some other, you know, right, like right, real right, alcohol. Real, yeah, like, yeah, some yeah, grizzled yeah. alcoholic. But the problem, right. so I, for me, I didn't have to detox. The one time I did have to detox actually was a long time before that. I, I have generalized anxiety disorder and I was working for a physician who thought he was being helpful and prescribed me some Xanax because I wasn't sleeping. And so I had two months worth of Xanax. And by the end of those two months, I was, it, it, I was sick for five days just from those two months of, of taking that Xanax. To so, withdraw off the Xanax? Yeah, it was ugly. I lost a lot of weight. It was just, and it was only two months. It was crazy. So, but off of alcohol, it wasn't that big of a deal. It was just more of orienting my head around the routines that I had built up around my drinking and, you know, what I, the way I organized my day, all of that. And you didn't go to treatment. You went to just 12 step. Yeah, I went to my... Sober date is June seventh, two thousand and thirteen, and which is my mom's birthday. Nice. Not coincidentally, because I got blackout drunk at my mom's birthday party, and my dad came upstairs in the morning. I don't remember that night. No idea what happened. You know, I don't know if that's is that good or bad. I, I don't know. I, I guess for me, it, it it's, it's good. both. We'll say it's both. Uh, husband had to take me upstairs, put me to bed. My my father came up in the morning, and he essentially said, "I know what an alcoholic looks like." You're an alcoholic and you need help. Who had he dealt with? Uh, his father had been an alcoholic, had been a... Did he get sober? No. Okay. No. I was so ready. I, and I, when he said that, I said, you're right. I mean, I had nothing left in me. I had no excuses. I had also... The backstory also was that my first book, The Gift of Failure, sold after an article I wrote for The Atlantic called Why Parents Need to Let Their Children Fail went viral. So... What year was that? 2013. That was January of 2013. So the same year. Yeah. And the book sold a couple months later. My agent, who's fantastic, uh, she helped me sell that book. And we had a huge auction. There were like, I think, 14 editors who were bidding round robin on this book. So it was a big, big deal. My dream had come true. I had sold this book. I was going to get to write a book finally. And I couldn't be a full-time teacher, full-time writer, and full-time drinker all at the same time. It just, it wasn't going to work. And my, that's basically what my dad said. He said, you've gotten the opportunity of a lifetime and you're going to blow it. 
And right. he was absolutely right. So I went to my first meeting that night. It's called the Twin State Meeting in White River Junction. It became my home group. I wept from the moment I walked into that room to the moment I left. And there was this amazing woman who sat across from me and just kept pulling Kleenex out of her bag. She, they just you. kept coming. She was, I think she was knitting. She also, a lot of the women up in Vermont at meetings knit, and she just kept pulling tissues out of her, ba her bag. And when I went up to get my 24-hour chip from this guy who I'm still friends with in recovery, in fact, I have a, someone that I'm helping out right now who needs a temporary sponsor, and this, and this person who gave me my 24-hour chip is going to sponsor this person. Nice. Um, I went up to get my chip, and this woman said under her breath to me, today's the worst day gets better. And it has. It has been none of what I have now, let alone obviously an entire career based on substance use prevention for kids would have happened if I had kept drinking. No, I think it's really interesting. And most, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm a horrible drug addict and most of the people that come on the show are horrible drug addicts. Which is the problem because then people like me feel like, yeah, I've, as I've a spilled more than you have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, my favorite meeting here in New York is Perry Street and I go to Perry Street meetings and I feel like, you know, if I do any of that comparison stuff, I'm screwed because... You know, I had a very, as they say, high bottom, and I no, got very there's lucky. No, there's nothing wrong with that at all. You know, our show was just born out of, you know, stupidity. You know, like the, the, the things that we thought were funny around addiction. Yeah, yeah. And what I was going to ask, and I forgot what I was going to say, because all I want to talk about is that there's no time <laughs> sharing at Perry Street, and it makes me crazy. Like, that's, I like Perry Street, but yeah. I hate no time sharing See, at Perry Street. See, here's the thing. I, as a writer... I love speaker-only meetings. So, like, my home meeting, the Twin State Recovery Group in White River Junction, it was That's a double, double speaker meeting on Sunday nights. <laughs> so you get a speaker in the first half hour and a speaker in the second half hour. And then my other home group was a women's-only meeting, and it was a speaker, and then, then there was discussion. But, yeah. So if you go from – and I, I personally hate most of the phrases, high bottom, low bottom, yeah, whatever – and like you're you're here, mm -hmm. you work in treatment. Mm -hmm. Your your work is around substance use disorder, addiction, helping people. Do you feel like you're left out because you're high bottom? No, no. In fact, the longer I'm in recovery, the more people like me I meet. I thought my story of not drinking as I thought, you know, when I first started going to recovery, all I heard was the story of, you know, I had that first drink at nine or that first drink at 12. And all of a sudden I felt like that was the answer to everything. Or I had my first hit of meth and that was the answer I was looking for. That was definitely not my story. And I thought, oh, well, I'm just some kind of weird alcoholic that doesn't match whatever. But then I started, you know, I spent more time in meetings and I started hearing my story also, which is, you know, really it ramped up after I had kids, after I was married, after, you know, in my thirties. And by the time I hit, you know, my late thirties, I knew I was in, in deep doo-doo. And the reason I knew I was in deep shit was that someone else came to me. There's a story in the book about the fact that I was waiting for my kid to come out of kindergarten and another parent who did not know me just turned to me out of nowhere and said, if I really, really look forward to that drink at the end of the day, does that mean I have a problem? Like why this woman chose to ask me that question? What did you say? I, I said I didn't feel like I was qualified to answer that question, but at the same time, that I was exactly at that point. I was in the exact same spot she was in. I had been questioning. I had been worried, you know. 
yeah. the purpose, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, the purpose of recovery is to have a nice life, is, is to have yeah. a good time, is to be able to enjoy your life. So it's like wherever you come in, I don't think makes a difference. I think what you can bring to the next person to help them have right. a nice life is the is really the point. Like I, I, you know, I got sober in AA. I never drank. I probably mm -hmm. drank like ten times in yeah. my life. Like, and, and and I still am really identifying with the solution all the time. Yeah. One thing that I love that I'm just realizing right now is you got sober after the gift of failure. So how connected was that gift to your recovery? So that it's a really important part of that story. I got I got sober after having done some of the research, but before the really heavy lifting of the writing started. And it was really good timing for me to get sober, not only because I was then able to write a book, but when I handed the book in, my husband and I went horseback riding the next day. A friend of mine who happens to own a horse barn, and I just can borrow the horses. My husband and I went riding, and I got thrown from a horse that day and had a really bad head injury and had really bad post-concussion syndrome heavy depression. It was just really bad. And then on top of that, I got the edits back on my book and they were ghastly. Like my editor who I love, she was like, yeah, this is not publishable in its current form. We're going to have to bring someone in to help you. Um, what she meant was we are going to br bring in a ghost writer and I'm a writer. So like what you're saying is you're going to bring in a better writer to help you, the writer. It was horrifying. So I said, um, you know, I can't, I just give me two chapters as like probation. <laughs> give me two chapters. Tell me everything I did wrong, everything that needs to be fixed, and then I will hand those two chapters in. And if you like them enough, maybe we can put off this whole ghostwriter thing. So I was depressed from quitting drinking. I was depressed from the concussion. I was depressed from the fact that I was being told I was a total failure at the thing I wanted to do more than anything in my whole life. And if I had been drinking during that period... Oh, it would have been bad. It would have been so, so bad. Where did the title come from, The Gift of Failure? So, actually, I have to give all credit to my agent, Lori Abkemeyer. Uh, her, it was her idea. There was a lot of, as soon as she came up with that idea, we were like, yeah, 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 that's it. Um, and then we just, we argued over the subtitle for like six months. Because isn't recovery the gift of failure? Yeah, yeah. That's and the I, coolest yeah, part. It really is. And I think... I think figuring out, getting to the place where you can stop repeating the same stupid mistakes over and over again and not learn anything from them, to the place where you go, oh, I screwed up and I learned something interesting at this meeting or from a book or whatever, so I need to figure out what I have to leave behind that's not working and figure out what is working and take that forward with me. And that's really 90% of teaching middle school. Like my job at the time when I wrote Gift of Failure, I was teaching middle school. I was teaching middle school Latin, English, and writing. My job is to watch these kids screw up all day long because their brains are not fully, they're not they're not even hooked up really to their frontal lobe, their prefrontal cortex, which is where all the higher thinking stuff happens. So my job is to walk around, watch kids screw up all day long and find the learning opportunities and teach them how to learn from their mistakes. So, you know, it, that's why I love middle school so much. Totally. And just like to improve, to learn from failure, to see failure as a gift. I mean, like I heard, I heard you tell that story and and the coolest part was that after you fucked up and they gave you they offered you the ghostwriter that you came back and you you wrote the book you know beautifully well, and was, then the next yeah. book you didn't have an edit 
I, I mean, that was what's funny is if you ask my kids what I'm most proud of in terms of accomplishments in my career, I don't think they would. Be, I don't know, but I don't think they would mention the gift of failure hitting the New York Times bestseller list. Although that was sweet, I think what they'll say is when I got those edits back on the addiction inoculation, and I had. Literally, I had this huge checklist of like what to do, what not to do. Did you check this? Does your organization look like this? Did you, you know, all of the mistakes I made with gift of failure, I just had that checklist so that I would not make the same mistakes again. Because I always want to be one of those pe people that people say, oh yeah, she learns from her mistakes. She doesn't make the same mistake twice, that kind of thing. So I think that's really is the proudest moment when my agent came back and she's like, we could move up release of this book because there's so little editing to do. That for me is the best. I learn very slowly. I make a lot of mistakes, <laughs> oh, like like slow mistakes over time. And I learn, I make the same mistakes so often. One thing, I mean, I'm reading that book, The Addiction Inoculation, and I'm thinking of my. I'm very self-centered. Okay. I'm, I'm thinking of myself, and I'm thinking of when you t when you talk about weed in mm -hmm. the book. Like I was such a horrible stoner, mm -hmm. and but my stonerdom didn't start in my adolescence. It started probably. I mean, I probably smoked pot for the first time at 17, but I don't think I smoked pot every day until around 19. Mm -hmm. In that moment, but the is the is the frontal lobe totally developed at that point. Okay, so the two periods of just massive development in the human brain are zero to two and puberty until around 25. Mm. So so I did damage. Yeah, so I mean, there's the thing that when I talk about substance use prevention in kids, it's not like I'm doing this, I'm talking about this stuff because drugs are bad or because drugs are illegal. You know, that's that's what I'm talking about is Drinking and using drugs in adolescence is a very different thing than doing it with your adult brain. Stuff that is medium to moderate risk in an adult brain is moderate to high risk in an adolescent brain. And the damage we see, we see both temporary and permanent damage. Luckily, the brain's pretty elastic. Sometimes it can heal itself. We see smaller hippocampuses in kids who are um, regular users of marijuana, and the hippocampus is the seat of memory formation. We see thinning in the prefrontal cortex, which is the adulting part of the brain, the part of the brain you need to like, you know, organize your resources, organize your time, set goals in a sequence leading up to a bigger goal. All of that sort of organized thinking, that doesn't come online until early to mid-20s. So having, I mean, having worked in a, in a rehab, working with adolescents for five years, it's pretty clear that a lot of those kids are, when they're starting using drugs pretty heavily, you know, right after puberty or right around puberty, they're doing some serious damage to their brains and some of it can't be undone. Yeah, I'm not, mine cannot be undone. I, I mean, it's fortunate that I've managed to cobble together a beautiful life and yeah. a nice podcast and a, a burgeoning deli career that I have going. Well, humans are remarkably adaptive creatures and our brains are incredibly capable. They're just so capable of like, you know, running new new connections around stuff that we've damaged. If you haven't read Dopamine Nation by Anna Lemke, you really need to read it. I'm interviewing her for an, a virtual event soon and I'm listening to it for like the fourth time. She is so smart and she talks about, you know, her work with people who are addicts and how dopamine works and how the dopamine cycle works in the brain. It's, she's just fascinating to listen to and I think you'd really like it. I gotta put on the list. I think you'd really like it. Because I think I need to explore the brain some more because mm -hmm. I'm finding my my own organization is horrible 
And but if you know how your particular brain works, then you can come up with strategies to help your to work with the way your brain works. There's a wonderful book by a woman named Deborah Reber, R-E-B-E-R, and she has a, a business called Tilt Parenting, and she has a wonderful book called Differently Wired, and it's about working with kids whose brains are slightly differently wired. And I think I learned a lot about how my brain is wired from reading her book. Well, these are two very great suggestions. <laughs> Anna Lemke sounds like a great potential dope. Yeah, she's great. And it's a there's a great episode of the Huberman podcast where she's on with him and they do some good talking about dopamine on that podcast. All right. And the dope dopey nation can benefit from the dopamine nation, I'm sure. Yeah. Another thing I I really loved in that book is is the discussion of how America is so, you know, established by beer, by drinking. (laughs) Like that story of, of like how prevalent alcohol was when America was formed and and can you talk about that a little bit? Because I think it's really enlightening to, to where we are. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it, the people, the Europeans who came here, um, in Europe at the time, many of their waterways were also sewers, right? So the water in many places and cities in Europe was not drinkable. So it stood to reason that they would bring fresh drinking water with them, obviously, on the, on the ships, but they also brought beer. There wasn't an understanding then about what it was exactly that was making beer safe. They thought it had to do with, you know, the alcohol or the malt or whatever. It turns out it's the boiling, right? Amazing. Right. So beer sort of came over with them. In fact, one of the very first things that the um, the sort of the first colonists did was try to get brewers to come over from Europe. They had to advertise to bring brewers over, and there wasn't malt to brew, wheat to brew with. There was, you know, they were making it out of just anything. They could make it out of, like, you know, bark and stuff like that. Um, so if you follow the story of sort of how we became a nation, you know, many of the early meetings here in New York, for example, were in taverns. A lot of the discussions around how we were going to fight against, you know, our uh, England, that a lot of that happened in taverns. A lot of the celebrations happened in taverns. And as a consequence of not thinking that they could drink the water here, um, you know, kids often were given watered down beer, small beer, um, the beer mixed with raw eggs, beer mixed with all kinds of things. So yeah, it's very much a part of our country's DNA, so to speak. I, I love hearing about the history of that and also just the history of, of drugs in the country yeah. and, and how many, you know, how opiates were used as cure-alls and, and mm-hmm. how pharmacies wouldn't have been opened if they couldn't sell uh, that yeah. tincture. What yeah. was it called? The Mrs. Uh, I can't remember. It's been a while. Yeah. It was, it was, it was a classic opiate drink that, that cured everything because opiates cure everything. Right. They're- and it was a big, it sold better than anything else. It was one of the things that really did keep the pharmacies open. The thing that's been so, oh, uh, there are some really cool books too. Like I'm a hoarder of books, especially when I'm doing research. I like to just read all of the books. And there's a, a recipe book I have called Colonial Spirits. And some of the spirits that they would mix up were things like, you know, beer and egg and milk and all these disgusting things mixed together. But it's really fun to read about some of the stuff the kids especially were drinking then. You also had a passion to make your own beer. Yeah, before I real Actually, I want to say like before it was a problem... We did make beer. We, uh, in fact, when one year we gave away our own uh, homebrew for Christmas presents. But then did I did. You realized, make a label? Yeah, we did. What and was we, the label? The label was a. Um, this was pre. I think I had like a 
it was just a black and white printer, and I think it was like a drawing of our dog. Nice. Um, and and you can put labels on bottles using milk because the sugar in the milk creates wow. a glue. They do fall off when the beer starts to, you know, when the bottle gets wet. But it was really, really fun. It was something my husband and I did together, and we really loved doing it. But then as things progressed for me, I realized that was just not going to be a safe situation anymore. But, of course, my alcoholic brain was like, well, my husband loves beer, so maybe and our neighbor down the street has one of those keg fridges. That would be great because then you – and then I realized, well, the reason that would be great is because it's a big keg and you can't see how far the beer's gone down. You know, I had – You've got that those that warring brain, that addict brain is so exhausting. Well, it's amazing what you're it's like when you talk about solutions to problems, your brain finds these solutions yeah. to how do I not get sober because yeah. I want that yeah. precious feeling. What was striking to me is did you listen to uh Dex Shepard's episode, the seven yes. days episode? What was so fascinating to me, also the timing was fascinating because I was on Armchair Expert right before he admitted to having relapsed. So it was just interesting to look back on it and think, oh, he could very well have been high while I was talking to him for the podcast. But also for him, I mean, he had 16 years under his belt, and yet his brain was still able to convince him that using opiates with his dad was a way of bonding with his dad, who he didn't have a great relationship with. Like, even after all that time, you can still trick yourself into believing that it's the right thing to do. Well, using opiates to bond with your dad could very well be a great bonding thing, but it's still a relapse. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, and from, if you read Dopamine Nation, you'll see like dopamine, that's what it give these opiates give us this feeling of being loved and warm. And so if for him, it's feeding that very thing he felt he was missing from his relationship with his dad. So it felt awfully right in the, at well, the moment. Well, it's everything. Because yeah. you get that warm yeah. feeling, plus yeah. you get the warm feeling of connecting with your father, yeah. which is yeah. what he wanted. Yeah. When you got into working with children around recovery mm -hmm. and addiction, how weird was it to work with opiate addicts? Like, tell us what you learned, really. As an opiate addict who went to treatment, like, it's such a it's such a weird position to be in and to talk to somebody, and I would love to hear the other side of it. What's interesting is that where when it came to most of the kids that I taught, almost all of them were just kind of you know they called themselves trash cans. They just would they were just looking to escape in any way, shape, or form. And you know some of them had preferences around the drugs that they were using, but a lot of them were just taking whatever they could get their hands on. And you know a lot of them. Yes, weed was one of the big ones. Prescription opiates, it wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. There weren't as many of them as I thought it was going to be. It was a lot of drinking. It was a lot of, there was some meth. Not as much of the uh, opiates as I thought there would be. I moved to Vermont in 2007 or eight. Mm -hmm. right? I was coming off of methadone, mm -hmm. and I thought it would be great to move to Burlington. Like I wanted. Well, to it is great to move to Burlington, May, you know. I wanted, I wanted to, I wanted to, I needed to leave LA. My mother yeah. was dying and they had a place near Bennington and I was scared to come back to New York. So me and my girlfriend mm -hmm. moved to Burlington. I think there was some crazy heroin boom in Vermont that year or something. It's a real problem down, down near Brattleboro, Bennington, Rutland. It's yeah. It's there was, there was a huge Rolling Stone article mm -hmm. like right around when, and I'm sure I was like, that's why we moved to Vermont. Cause mm -hmm. I I didn't use, like I didn't, I didn't wind up using, I found like a very depressing Narcotics Anonymous meeting in Burlington. Like no one was there. <laughs> it was like three high people and me That's in funny. some attic. It was really depressing. 
but I could sense the opiates everywhere. Hmm. I could I could feel them around. Mm-hmm. I could feel and Burlington is a very bustling beautiful yep. city but on the outskirts i could f- see yeah. the, the the drug addiction yeah what was the what's the community like there in terms of like how is the opiate situation there now and and how is it being dealt with so vermont is really proactive in and have you ever met bernie sanders i have no i've walked past him and i've been in the grocery store with him once because he, nice. he does his, you know he goes to the grocery store that we go to incredible <laughs> My son uh, has met him, actually, I think. Uh, yeah, because when his book came out, my son was working in Burlington city government and I think got to meet him at that point. But anyway, Burlington is really supportive. Like if you cut fly into Burlington Airport, there's recovery language all over the windows coming in from BTV, our little airport. And it's, Burlington has some great programs. There's some really great programs for, you know, not only for detox, but for kids to support kids. The problem is, is connecting this very specific needs of kids that are different from adults to the services that they need. Because uh, you know how I said I worked at this inpatient rehab that treated adolescents. Well, that they don't treat adolescents anymore. There is no inpatient rehab anywhere in Vermont for kids. It just doesn't exist. So, and part of that is because they're trying to do more community-based programs as opposed to, you know, inpatient stuff. But some kids do need inpatient stuff and it just doesn't exist there. But the vibe in Burlington is lots of resources, lots of places to go. Mental health resources are stressed there just like they're stressed everywhere right now because so many kids need it. So many of us need it. One of the the real common stories I hear from, because I've been to a lot of treatments and I've talked to a lot of addicts mm-hmm. since we started this and how many young people went to treatment at 17 or 16 mm-hmm. because they didn't they couldn't stop smoking pot. Yeah. And within a year, they're on heroin because of what they hear in the treatment. Do you think that has something to do with why there aren't more really young people inpatients? You know, partially that just has to do with what we talked about, the fact that their brain, our brains are not done developing until we're in our early to mid-20s. And if you've been messing around chemically with your brain, you may have actually stalled out that process. So if, you know, as an adult, I'm able a little bit better at reasoning, at looking at the pros and cons of something, of weighing the possible negative outcomes and the possible positive outcomes a little more evenly. Whereas if you're an adolescent and your brain is still developing, you just don't have as much of that executive function skills that you need in order to be a little bit more reasonable about the pros and cons of using. So, Relapse is very much a part of the adolescent picture. And the problem is there are, you know, for example, we have a a nationally, there's an association of, of recovery schools. And there's this division between recovery schools that say, okay, well, if a kid relapses, that's it. They're out. They can't come back. Versus, you know, if a kid relapses, well, of course they're going to relapse because that's what adolescents do and it's part of the the path for them. So let's get them back here and keep them alive. And thank you for having Maya Salovitz on because, you know, harm reduction is so much a part of the picture with kids because really and truly we cannot save these kids unless they're alive and keeping them alive until, you know, they can help themselves is often, you know, part of that picture for us. Totally. But that's coming back to it being the gift of failure. Relapse can be, if you survive a relapse, 
relapse can be the gift of failure. Yeah, there's a. It was funny when gift of, when uh, the addiction inoculation came out. The more, one of the things I want to make it really clear is you ask Maya why she talks so much about being in recovery and why she's so out there about it, and she said something that I tend to say a lot too, which is. I am privileged enough to be out about the fact that I'm an alcoholic. And, you know, what I get is a lot of, oh, you're so brave. You're so whatever for being noble, for being out there and talking about it. Well, there are just so many people who can't. A lot of kids can't. A lot of people without privilege. A lot of people who are, you know, in a situation where everyone's going to think the worst of them anyway. If I'm a woman of color and I'm a single mom, you know, it's just another strike against me. It's kind of my job to be out there and out about it. And so when I do that, I always get emails and calls and DMs and stuff. But when addiction inoculation came out, someone I knew from high school just started randomly DMing me just to check in, just saying hi. Right. I totally knew what was going on. Right. You totally know what's going on. And then like a year later, it's like, oh, you know, maybe we could talk on the phone sometime. And I'm like, sure, anytime. Here's my number. Totally knowing where this is going. And then another year goes by, and then finally I get a very drunk phone call from this person. And this person has gone into recovery, has relapsed a couple of times, but has learned really significant stuff each time. You know, people that I work with at Santa, when they come back, they're like, oh, I cannot, I'm so humiliated. I can't meet you and I can't look you in the eye because I'm back. Aren't you ashamed of me? And I'm like, well, what'd you learn? That's not a worthless experience. You now know what leads up to a relapse for you? So what are those behaviors? How do we avoid them? How do we change them? You know, it's a really important part of getting better. And if they can transmit that story to somebody else, they don't have to take that path. Yeah. And, and again, life is is a series of, of mistakes and successes. And, and, and as long as you live, as long as it's not over, you have the capacity to yeah. do good, to have fun, to be part of the the story. Like I think when you or Maya or me talk about being out or or sharing about you know um, the privilege of of being able to mm -hmm. do it, I mean to me I see it as more of an opportunity to carry the message. Yeah, because, of course. But then it's interesting because the tradition is to not carry the message publicly, and I don't care. Like I I, I tend to just say twelve step. Yeah. Like I, I always know. say 12 step. I try not to say. Right. Because you don't want to be like, because it's funny because it's an orthodoxy that saves our lives right. and you don't want to violate. Right. But at the same time, it's like, I don't think it really foresaw this kind of media and this right. and the way this kind of media can help. And it was helpful for me to know, oh, Stephen King got sober in 12 step. Oh, you know, all these other people got sober in 12 step. And so for me, that was the first place my brain went. And again, I, there are lots of ways for people to get sober. It just happens to be where I got sober. But I think the whole, we don't talk about it thing that just does not work for me because I know that every single time I talk about it and I talk about the fact that, you know, we have to banish shame, we have to banish guilt, we have to talk about it. It's also for me, since I'm not a big God person, everyone else in recovery, the, uh, the people I have to show up for, they're my higher power. Like the people at the rehab, the people in my 12-step group, the people on my we also have a little friend group that's a mini meeting that we do sometimes because a bunch of my friends are in recovery. All of those people are my higher power. That's who I have to show up for. And, you know, being very, very public about my, about the fact that I'm an alcoholic is part of, a big part of what keeps me sober. There are a lot of people looking over my shoulder. And if I screw up, I'm letting a lot of people down. And 
that's fine with me that that's the pressure that keeps me sober. No, I love that. And I, I also appreciate what you're talking about higher power because like it can be a stumbling block. Yeah. I mean, it prevents so many people from getting well. Yeah. The idea that a doorknob can be a higher power can be like, <laughs> can, can be I a actually heard break. something really cool. So mine, like I said, has always been, it's that woman who handed me the tissues during right. that fire, entire right. first meeting. It's really, it's, like I said, it's all the people I have to show up for. But one woman said something meaningful to me. She said, I had a problem with higher power for a long time. And then I was out on a hike and I looked up and there was this massive boulder on the side of the mountain sort of teetering, just sitting there. And she and I realized I could never put that there. There's something much more powerful than me that put that there. And that's all that's, that's what enough for me. It's that's enough for her. Totally. It's yeah. enough for anybody. It's yeah. like it can prevent somebody or like. I heard you talking about uh, how some people believe that trauma is the end-all, be-all mm -hmm. for addiction, and some people think that's the only place alcoholism and addiction can be born from, but you were saying how that's one place mm -hmm. it can be born from, and, I, and, and it's not all hereditary, and it's not all circumstance and it's not it's not all anything yeah we tend to be pretty binary in our thinking thank goodness I came f I came to this from education journalism and in education oh my gosh everything's binary you're either pro public schools or you're pro charter there's right. no in between right. you're either pro you know it's ridiculous if you you know talk about one side that must be the side that you're fully for and the nice thing about researching the addiction inoculation is that I got to come at all of the literature without a horse in any one particular race and say, you know, what works, what doesn't work? Let me look at the research. I happen to be also be married to a statistician. So if that I helps. wasn't sure, yeah, I could pass something by him. It really was nice to say, okay, you know, like some places talk about, you know, therapy animals. Well, do those animals really work? Here's the pros, here's the cons, here's the research for, here's the research that's like, meh. But, you know, we went ahead and got a dog anyway because, you know, a little more oxytocin in your system doesn't hurt. Exactly. And I, <laughs> and I, but I think, like, it's important for me to, to say that there is no one way. Right. There is no, right. like, you know, if you go out, you're going to die. Yeah. Like, that isn't necessarily the case. Yeah. And, and, and there's a million ways to get well. And, and I just feel like it's more shit that keeps people separated. Right. And, and that's not going to help in the bigger picture. And it's really maddening too, especially when we have evidence-based best practices uh, like with using meds to help with treatment or in, in the addiction inoculation. So I write research-based nonfiction, but I'm a storyteller. So there's always a story in each chapter. And, and I'm hugely indebted to two of the people who gave me their stories for the book, Brian and Georgia. Yes. Brian and Georgia, both people I met when they were very young. I was Georgia's teacher in high school. And one of the things that still drives me bananas that made me so angry was when Georgia was pregnant and using methadone in order to help her stay healthy during that pregnancy, she was shunned from 12-step meetings, and which was the last thing she needed at that point in her life. And that makes me so angry when we turn on each other because there's this way's right versus that way's right, you know, and I get the difference between 
you know, as because I work in a rehab, I'm constantly hearing people do that bargaining, like, okay, well, I don't want to use this label, but I'm thinking I'm going to do it this way. And there has to be a certain amount of my sitting there and nodding and saying, well, have you thought about it this way? Have you thought about it that way? Without putting down their way of thinking that they're going to stay sober. It's a really fine line to walk. Give me the example of what the way they would want to do. So, in fact, I ran into, so I was in, (laughs) this came up at the rehab recently, and then I was in Abu Dhabi last week for work, and I was sitting next to this guy at the table at at a uh, restaurant, and I said, I said, I'm an alcoholic. It came up because of something else. I can't remember why I don't go around yelling it all the time. But I came up, and he looked, he did a double take. He's not from the U.S., and he did a double take, and he said, you mean you were an alcoholic, like, because you don't drink now. And I said, yes, but I am an alcoholic. I will always be an alcoholic, blah, blah, blah. And this was really an upsetting perspective for him. Like, he did not like this. He wanted me to say... I'm He's cured. like, but isn't this isn't this about habits? And um, you know, if you if you move forward with a label like I'm an alcoholic, isn't that fatalistic? And it's gonna put you in a box and blah 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 blah. And you know, there's a whole school of thought in recovery about this as well. I said, I totally see where you're coming from. And then luckily, on the other side of him was a guy who has even more sobriety than me, and he used the analogy of type one diabetes. You know, I am a diabetic. I take insulin, so my blood sugar is normalized, but I am still, if I don't take that insulin, I'm still a diabetic and I can still die of my diabetes. And that was a really good analogy for this guy, but he was really pushing back hard, just like another guy at the rehab a couple of weeks ago, was like, never going to use a label because that just puts me in a box and I don't want to be in a box, don't want to be labeled. And I understand where that need to not have a label like that on you. But for me anyway, it's, I find it very helpful. Was that guy, you think that guy was an alcoholic? No, I think he... His like wife or something? I think he's a very power of positive thinking kind of guy. And he doesn't like people self-limiting. I think that was where he was coming from. I get that all the time. Like yeah. I, 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 I run around the street screaming I'm a drug addict. <laughs> and, and, and people are like, you're not, but you're not on drugs now. Right. You're not an addict. Right. And I say, well, I'll always be an right. addict because, and I, I don't even go any further than I say, that's just the way it is. Yeah. And I'm not using and I'm happy I'm not using and right. it's great, but I'm a drug addict and it doesn't limit my life. It just shows me where I came from. It does. You know, the things that still help me remember that are things like there's a friend of mine holds these fantastic dinner parties and there is so much booze and so much weed. And, you know, I usually... Where are these parties? <laughs> and it ends up being, I usually end up being one of the only sober people there towards the end. And so I just sort of mentally prepare for that. We tend to leave a little early. My mm-hmm. husband and I have a signal, blah, 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 What's blah. What's the signal? The signal is we just kind of lock eyes and I'm like, it's time. It's time to go. Because anyway, so the last time I was there, I had one of those moments where I'm like, you know, it occurs to you, oh, maybe I could drink again. Mm-hmm. And I do this ex- this mental exercise where I think, how much booze would there have to be here for me to feel safe? And how blind would everyone here have to be for me to be able to drink the way I want to? And the answer is, I need all the booze and I need everyone else to go away. Right. And it needs to be just (laughs) me here at this delightful dinner party drinking all of it alone. And that's when I go, oh yeah, still an alcoholic. Yeah, there we are. No, I love that. We were talking before we started about how you do not accept a salary and you put all of the salary towards this 
fund. Yeah, so at Santa, when I was asked to come on board at Santa, so Santa is was really cool. I didn't ever think I would be a part of a detox and recovery place. You know, I know all the stories. I know about the kickbacks. I know about the, you know, body brokers and all that stuff. So the head of addiction medicine at University of Vermont, Dr. Sanchit Maruti, and another guy who I knew socially who's a serial entrepreneur, he's just an amazing guy, they got together, well, William Katzbarrel. And so Dr. Maruti and William Katzbarrel got together and they wanted to start a really high-end, really well-done, evidence-based, psychiatrist there, good food, you know, whole blah, 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 blah. And so right about the time addiction inoculation came out, I had this great big three-page spread in People Magazine and they saw it and they're like, duh, let's ask Jess to be a part of Santa. And what does it stand for? Santa just means health or well-being in, in, to, to, in Latin. Okay. Yeah. Forgive me. Is that where sauna comes from somehow? No. That's for, that's a, a different word root. I I'm love pa- I'm painfully uneducated, it turns I, well, out. I was a Latin teacher for six years. Come on. Anyway, so when I sat, they asked me to sit down and have lunch with them, and I could not figure out what the heck they wanted me to have lunch with me about. So they told me about the rehab, and I asked them all the questions. I'm like, are you getting any fees from doctors? Are you, you know, I asked about how this was going to work and specifically wanted to know why they were going to be different from other places. And so anyway, when it came down to it, you know, it's really high quality. They really are big on follow through. Like we always have big plans and you can always come back and there's always resources coming back, blah, blah, blah. And so I said, okay, well, here's my obscene consulting fee. And I got them to agree to it. And then I said, but I don't want it. I want it to go into this fund for young people, 18 to 24, who can't afford to come to a place like this with a chef and a sauna, and, or not a sauna, with a yoga and all that stuff. Equine therapy. Yeah, it's, it's lovely. And it's, you know, it's in Stowe. It's, it's, in, it's in the mountains. It's beautiful. So I named the fund after one of my best friends who died. Um, she was not an addict. She had cyclical depression and died by suicide in about a little over 20 years ago. But she also had gone to law school and gotten her degree in social work because she was helping people at rape crisis centers. She was helping litigate for people who were being taken advantage of by, you know, the check cashing outlets. So she would have loved this. So money that flows under her name that gets funded by my time that I spend working there help makes it so that some kids can come, 18 to 24 can come and get help. And, you know, our only restriction is they can't be actively suicidal or actively psychotic. Those are our two restrictions on that. But it's called the Mary Moore Parham Scholarship Fund at Santa at Stowe. That's awesome. And what do you do there exactly? It's really cool. I was that was a big question mark for me. Like, you know, what on earth am I doing here? I'm just I it's almost like I have two hours a week to talk about my story, to talk about 12 step. A lot of people I know from my perspective I needed to know what happens from begin. Like I Googled what happens from beginning to end in a recovery meeting because I wanted to fake it and make it look like I knew what I was doing there because just being a part of something I didn't know anything about was intimidating to me. So sometimes I'll just lead them through a meeting. Sometimes I'll talk about my escape strategies, like like my signal to my husband sure. for people that are about to get out. We talk about their plans. We talk about avoiding relapse. So technically I'm a prevention coach and often parents will end up at Santa and they're like, okay, well, 
yeah, let's talk about what on earth I'm going to do about my kids. Like, how do I talk to my kids about what I'm going through? How do I talk to them about the fact that I have a problem? And what do I do going forward with prevention? So I'm a kind of a one-size-fits-all resource for recovery and prevention and understanding also where it came from in you. Like, it's often news to people that it has anything to do with trauma or adverse childhood experiences or academic failure or social ostracism. And these are all risk factors for substance use disorder. And many people are like, wait a second, the fact that I have all these relatives and the fact that I had a, my mother die when I was four, all of these are part of you know, my bigger picture of substance use disorder. And, and it also helps people understand where it comes from and you know, why it's not their fault. Right, right. All these different factors that that turn us into right. these addicts and right. alcoholics. The I'm one of those people who really just likes to understand the why, and you know that my entire career is based on understanding the why, and so I help other people understand the why. It's funny because I didn't understand the why in terms of my own addiction mm -hmm. for for the whole time. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? Like I understood like I liked how it made me feel. Like mm -hmm. I I knew I liked how it made me feel. I knew that I had anxiety. I didn't see it as a why though. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. They were like, they were like, but you weren't sexually molested, but you right, you right. weren't like beaten, but you weren't this, but you and and because of that, I was like, oh, I don't have a why, but I'm even right. explaining to you all of the why. Right. And in the addiction inoculation, it's an amazing book because it can help you prepare your child to not have to go through what I went through or right. what you went through. If the genie is out of the bottle, though, like if you have a child and they're smoking weed mm -hmm. and they're going down the path, mm -hmm. how do we inoculate them? How do we undo it? Like how often are you like, fuck, they didn't read the book in time and now <laughs> we're fucked. Like, like how do you deal with that? Yeah, so that's a question I get a ton. And the thing that drives me nuts more than anything else is when an expert in one area then claims to be an expert in areas that they're not experts in. So from my perspective, you know, when you have a kid that is you're just starting to worry about that you're not sure if this is a problem or not. I do, I am able to talk parents through like, you know, what kind of changes are you seeing in your kid, blah, 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 blah. You have to talk to your kid about the fact that just because you have used doesn't mean that it's not like you're ruined now. It's not like you're either clean or not clean for the rest of your life. Part of this is we make mistakes and how are we gonna, you know, not make the same mistake again and learn from it, all that sort of stuff. But if you're getting to the place where you think your kid needs help, then we're in the territory of, you know, Dr. Joseph Lee's book, Recovering My Kid. He's the, now the CEO of Hazleton. He used to be in charge of adolescent services there. But his book, Recovering My Kid, is great. You know, obviously, David Sheff's clean book is great. When we're getting to the point where we're talking about your kid really needs, needs help, then I am not yet an expert. That's not your world. And I hope to be, but I'm still working towards that. And I, I try to be really careful about what I call myself an expert in because so many other people are willing to overstep their bounds. Well, I mean, another thing as an addict who, who wouldn't get sober for so long, I was like, nothing works. There's mm -hmm. nothing you can tell me. Right. There's right. nothing I can tell right. someone else. It isn't. And in reality, you have no idea what's going to work. And the other thing that's maddening to me is I send this book, I send the addiction inoculation to a lot of like principals, to a lot of people in schools. There's a whole chapter in there about best, best practices for schools. I was just, it was just, and then, in that well, chapter. and then the principals of like 
an elementary school will say, oh, thank you so much. I sent it on to our high school principal. And I'm like, no, 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 no. This stuff starts really, really young. Like it starts in kindergarten, it starts in elementary school in a very sort of developmentally appropriate way. And yeah, we're going to get to a place where we're deep in the weeds, you know, middle school, high school, that kind of stuff. But if we're waiting until middle school to start talking about this stuff, we're waiting too long. Right, because the because yeah. it's it's the beginning of the end. Yeah, kind of and there's a, so much that schools can do because at this point, you know, only fifty seven percent of the schools in this country are using any are doing any kind of substance use prevention program, and of that fifty seven percent, only ten about ten percent are evidence based. And we know what works and we know what doesn't work. Like you mentioned, Dare earlier, and the early iterations of Dare. If you went through that, you were more likely to use after going through Dare. Not so much the newer iterations of Dare, but the old ones that you know I was exposed to. I was more likely to use if I went through that program because it creates this sort of mythology that is is and it's such bullshit you know they're lying so what's the truth <laughs> well drugs are bad is not exactly the best way to get to kids about this because kids are smart and they say well if drugs are bad why are so many people using them what's the, what's the possible explanation there mom huh i also yeah. just love the idea like drugs can be i mean if you're not an addict drugs can be amazing and and the worst part about it is if you're a kid Drugs can just ruin your brain so you can't think later on yeah. in your life. And that, that seems like it's a big part of the story. Yeah, aside from the whole, you know, whatever, 10% that can't moderate, <laughs> there's just the fact that their brains are still developing. And there's there's circuitry in the brain that's not done yet. They're, the lower part of the brain is more active at certain points in adolescence than the upper brain. So you have like this like constant you know, pedal to the metal accelerator going go, go, go without a lot of sort of stopping to think. They're weighing possible positive outcomes of doing risky and novel things more than they're weighing the possible negative outcomes. There's a whole bunch of stuff that once, see the cool thing is once you understand the adolescent brain and it's, there's a reason that I write about it both in Gift of Failure and the Addiction Inoculation because once you understand why the adolescent brain is different from an adult brain, it makes it so much easier easier to tolerate the crap. It makes it so much easier for you to look at your kid and say, okay, that spot right between their eyes, that's the part of the brain that's not hooked up yet. And that's what's driving me bananas. It's not totally their fault. I'm still going to blame her for it. All right. Well, you can do that, but it also I don't makes want it easy. to. I don't want to. I get so, yeah. I can get so frustrated though. No, I appreciate. Of course, of course you do. But at the same time, try being in a, you know, a middle school or a high school with hundreds and hundreds of them, let alone thousands. Oh my God. But I think understanding the adolescent brain is one of the reasons I love them so much. It is. Uh I adore them. I just love teenagers. And I think I couldn't have gotten there if I didn't understand the particular way their brains work. And I think your work is so amazing because, like, my wife really benefits from what you've learned and she uses it. I'm so happy. And I don't all the time. I mean, I'm just such a child that I can relate in a different way with them in a very childlike kind of, you know, brawling sort of goofy dad way. Mm -hmm. She sent me a quote, my wife, from uh, The Gift of Failure that I think is really interesting and fun. And it's very short. It's some days courage looks a lot like failure, except it's the exact opposite. And I just think like it's so deep. It's such a it's (laughs) such a it's such a crazy, scary idea where courage aligns with failure. Yeah. Yeah. Because we want to be brave. We want 
and we want to be brave and succeed. Yeah. We don't want to be brave and fail. So talk about, please, courage and failure. So the, the main part, the heart of the gift of failure is also about the fact that we know that extrinsic motivators like grades, points, scores, paying kids for grades, surveilling kids, control over kids as a way of trying to get them to do things over the long term, we know that doesn't work, right? What we want is intrinsic motivation in kids. We want them to want to do the thing for the sake of the thing itself, right? And we see them do that with Legos. With my kids, it's like learning guitar or- Drawing. Yeah, yeah, all that kind of stuff. The stuff that they'll do for long periods of time and just get totally swept up. And for me, it's writing, it's cross-country skiing, it's things that are like- just difficult enough that they hold my attention and there's effort required, but that I get, I become one with the thing I'm doing. And right? you get a reward from right. doing it's, it. Right. It's what Mihai Csikszentmihalyi calls flow state, right? So that's sort of the highest level of intrinsic motivation. And in order to get that in kids, you have to give them three things. You have to give them some autonomy and you have to help them feel competent and not just confident. And parents we tend to be so good at like talking up our kids and telling them how perfect and wonderful and talented they are and how, you know, they never make mistakes and blah, blah, blah. And, but that's not competent. That's just confident. And then we have to also be connected with them, right? We have to have a real... Let's, wait, let's talk yeah. about confident and competent sure, more. Sure, sure. So like when we're talking about competency, mm -hmm. it is for the child to actually believe that they can do something not the myth that they're great. So confidence is just when you're sh pretty sure you can do something, but it's more like optimism, which is great. Optimism is incredibly, right. Or my mom says, I'm the smartest reader in the class, therefore I'm going to show up and just kill it. But you don't know because you've never gone to kindergarten before. So that's confident. And confidence is great. I love confident kids. What I like even better is when kids are competent, which is confidence based on actual experience, trying something, screwing it up, trying it again, figuring out that they actually have a skill. They have abilities that no one can take away from them because confidence, you know, that bubble gets burst and it's like, oh, oh I, don't really I, to, I don't really know right. how to do this thing. Yeah, exactly. I'm not smart. I, I suck. But if I have competence, like, no, I, I know how to do that thing. I've, I've made macaroni and cheese before and I think I can do it again. That's, I can't take away from you the fact that you have made macaroni and cheese and know all the steps and have done it successfully. That's something that sticks, right? So you can have actually earn confidence right. because you have competence. Right. And the important thing to know is from a teacher's perspective, some of the most powerful tools I have as a teacher our tasks, like for example, this thing called a desirable difficulty, which really does require a kid to get a little frustrated, to run up against their the edge of their ability level and be able to sort of take a breath and rely on themselves and push through to the end. Because desirable difficulties do this cool thing where it helps the brain encode information rather than just shoving it into short-term memory. So it's more durable, you know it for longer, mm. blah, blah, blah. You know it more deeply. Um, but when kids can't push through, when they get frustrated and just give up, which is something we see a lot um, with, you know, kids go to that first gymnastics class and can't do like the perfect roundup back, back handspring and they're like, well, that's it. Forget it. I'm done. Or I went to law school and I got my first grade back um, and I didn't take practice, practice exams because I thought those were for the losers who weren't smart. And I got my first grade back and it was a 68. And my first thought upon getting that grade was I must quit law school immediately because A, I'm not built for this, 
and B, if I do it quickly, no one will find out and no one will know what a big failure I am, right? But for kids who can push through and do, and I was just talking about Mary Moore Parham, the person this scholarship is, is named for, she was actually my friend in law school who when I got that low grade on that first test, she said, you know, sure, you could quit, great, you could do that, or maybe we could go talk to your professor and find out what you did wrong so that you don't repeat that issue. And we did, and we went to his office, and I figured out what I did, and it was something that was easy to fix and whatever. But I don't want kids to be like that kind of kid who gives up the minute that they can't do something the first time because that's how you build competence. And that's how I deploy my most useful teaching tools to help them learn the most. So if you think about who can learn the most in my classroom, it's not the kid that gives up right away. It's the kid who, you know, has the ability to feel frustrated and sort of, you know, deal with it and move on from there. It's interesting. It makes me think of my childhood where I was not particularly competent at anything the only thing i was really competent as as an adolescent was was bullshitting was lying and so many addicts are like that yeah where they develop this insane ability to bullshit where they don't have to do most anything else all they have to do is like say the right thing here say the right thing yeah. there yeah, yeah yeah so by the time they're in a position to reclaim their lives the only mm -hmm. thing they know how to do is bullshit and it's a really interesting place because that's when you need to find competency and you can find it in, in patience and you can find it in getting really slow. But that's, I mean, I think that's a real reason why people don't recover. But that's also an incredible talent too, because I constantly work with kids who are like, I can't apply for that job. I'm not qualified for that job. And I'm like, no, you apply for that job and then you figure it out once you get there. Because that's what we're so good at right. is being adapting. quick on our feet and adapting and figuring out how to make it work even if we have no idea what we're doing. I love that. Because, yeah, because how can an addict ever know how they're going to get by, get through the day without anything? Yeah. And yet somehow we pull it off. Yeah, exactly. I love that. Some of the most resourceful people I have ever met are people who are really deep in their in their addiction. Right. And figuring out how to use that for good is part of the trick. That's the best. And yeah. I really, really love that. Thank you. Yeah, of course. Is there anything else that you didn't say that you wish you had said? Uh, yeah. Can I can I talk about these uh, these videos I put out every day now? Yeah. So someone told me, uh, so I do a lot of talks about gift of failure, and I do a lot of talks about addiction inoculation, but it's easier to get people to come to the gift of failure stuff because it's about, oh, helping my kid be better in school, that sort of stuff. And addiction is scary right? Parents don't want to be seen at that event because like maybe someone will think that they're worried about their kid, whatever. So a friend of mine said, look, maybe there are people who are too afraid to come to those, to those events that you hold. So why not just do it one-on-one -on -one in videos? So I started putting a video up every single day on Instagram reels and as a post, and then also on TikTok. Um, so that, and I'm working my way through the addiction inoculation from front to back in 90 second videos, one a day. And it's just for those people who aren't quite ready to sort of do this in front of other people and learn about this stuff in front of other people. And, and I completely understand why, because it's scary sometimes to think about, you know, to think about the risk factors that your kids are carrying around with them, especially when some of them are things as simple as, you know, divorce and separation is an adverse childhood experience. And a lot of parents have trouble sort of facing realistically the risks that their kids face but we can't 
we can't hope to prevent substance use in kids. And by the way, at the very top of the show, you said you felt very fatalistic about this whole thing, like, well, there's nothing we can do. Why even try? Substance use disorder is preventable. We know it is preventable. Is it easy to prevent? Absolutely not, because so much of it comes out of adverse childhood experiences and early academic failure and social ostracism and intergenerational poverty and you know systemic racism. But if we know about those things and we are able to intervene, especially with kids and do early interventions for kids, it is preventable. We just have to convince kids that they are enough because so many kids go to drugs and alcohol because they don't feel like they're enough. And as long as we can get kids to a place where they feel like they deserve to take up space in the world and be loved and that they are enough, that's how we prevent substance use in kids. I love that. I really do. Because my first thing is to battle that kind of phrase that there's so many happenstance scenarios that yeah. happen to an addict where this doesn't happen, but this does. Mm -hmm. and then And then all of a sudden they feel this mm -hmm. from a substance and they get, you know, like for me, it happened through anxiety, neuroses, insecurity. Mm -hmm. And then, so I got all that comfort right. from, from weed and then music. Right. And it all went into this incredible fantasy where all of my needs are met finally. Right. But I don't think I was ever really under the belief that I was enough. Well, and that's what one of Chris Heron's favorite, one of my favorite lines from him, and I put that's why it's in the book, is he says, you know, we talk so much about the last day and what we really need to be talking about is the first day. Why, what was it in you that you were trying to, what was the hole you were trying to fill up in yourself on that first day? And what could we have done for you as adults right. to help you feel like you were enough? And can we do it for every kid? You know, I, I have to stay optimistic because I don't think I could write about education and child welfare if I wasn't. You can't do it for every kid. No, I can't. <laughs> yeah, but that's, yeah, but I think that's one of yeah. the most important yeah. pieces that I'm getting from this yeah. conversation is that the addiction inoculation is an opportunity for all of right. us to be better to all young people. Right. So that we can, you know, take the village, blah, blah, blah. So, but we can pass along that all these kids are enough and that you don't know what adult is going to put that message right. into this kid's head. But if there's a lot of adults that are carrying that message, it, it creates a much better scenario for these kids. Well, and the research is really clear. Kids, as long as kids have one person who believes in them and gives them hope and helps them see that their world can be a better place, they are they have much better outcomes. See, I didn't. I I felt like I didn't have anybody. Like I really don't. I mean, like my parents love me and stuff. Mm -hmm. I didn't have a teacher like mm -hmm. who was interested. I didn't have a mentor type. Right. Never, never once. It's and and so it's not. It's like. It's not that crazy of yeah. a leap that I became this heroin addict. One of my students that I wrote about at one point, he said he didn't either. He said he had no teacher, no one ever. I was trying to get him to be positive about school because he was thinking about going back to finish high school. He was on probation. And finally, he realized he did have one person. It was this guy who sort of occupied the rubber room, like where they sent, quote, the bad kids. Yeah. And this guy who just sort of was a babysitter for the bad kids he had got to know them. He taught this kid guitar. He sort of, he saw him. And this kid said, if I don't go back to finish high school, that 
guy will be the only person who will notice if I'm gone. And he's the only reason I think I might go back and finish high school. So you don't have to be a teacher. You don't have to be a pastor. You don't have to be, you know, some great, you know, big brother, big sister person. You know, that's wonderful. You might just be the person who really sees a kid for the first time and sees who they are for who, you know, they want to be and not like what the world wants them to be. And that's being seen and heard for who we are is, you know, at our deepest level, what we want. Right. No, I love that. And and I think that this is, it's an opportunity for us to be better adults. Yeah. You know, I'm always looking for like, well, how, how am I going to get better? You know, like, what is yeah. this going to do for yeah. me? But it's an opportunity to be a better adult. Yeah. And, and if I'm a better adult, again, it's like recovery. It's like recovery isn't about how do I not do drugs? How do I not drink? It's about how can I enjoy my life based on making the right choices and doing the next right thing. Yeah. This is an opportunity to be the best adult I can be, make the world better, but also benefit from it because I will feel good if I let a kid know that they are enough. Right. I 100% have more faith in humanity since starting to go to 12-step meetings. Like the Twin State 12-step meeting in White River Junction, Vermont, has a cool mix of like people who are there to get their, their card signed for court versus, you know, these there are these guys in like all biking leathers, you know, and who come up and speak about humility and, and, and their time when they had that lack of humility. And I'm watching this guy that would have freaked me out and made me cross over to the other side of the street because I would have been frightened of him standing up there at the front of the room using this incredibly emotionally intelligent language about humility and what they lack. And it's it's really restored my faith in people. And all of a sudden you're connected and, yeah. and, and you have a new reason to be humble and a yeah. new reason to respect somebody who you Absolutely. didn't. Absolutely. Yeah. And I'm remembering I had people who were good to me. I don't know why I have this fatalist thing. I don't know. I don't know either. I've always been an optimist. There's a great book by a bunch of books by Martin Seligman on being optimistic. See, I don't think I'm up. pessimistic. I've always thought I was just realistic. Okay. I have a kid like that. My daughter thinks that if she, if her expectations are low, low, <laughs> then she'll never be, disappo be disappointed. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, that makes me sad. <laughs> I feel like <laughs> no. that's a good way to, I feel like that's a, a safe, a good way to be. Um, yeah, I, I, listen, I get it. I think aim high, go for whatever you want. I mean, what I, what I tell my older daughter, my younger daughter doesn't really know what's going on yet. But what I tell my older daughter is she can do whatever she wants, find something she likes, do it and and you'll never not enjoy your life. I mean, she knows how much I love doing this podcast. Yeah. Like I love doing this podcast. I love everything about it. I love putting it together. I love figuring it out. I love meeting people like you. I love talking about this stuff. But uh, my daughter was in a, a class and they were talking about successful people mm -hmm. and they were like talking about Elon Musk and fucking bill gates and whatever and my daughter's like my daddy is successful yeah they're talking about rich people not necessarily successful people. but she thought i was successful because That's she knows so how much fun i have doing this yeah and i'm sure your kids think the same thing of you but you're yeah so well and part of that is because in gift of failure we did this thing i we do this exercise that i used to do with my advisees where we talk more about our goals than our than grades. We hardly ever talk about grades, but we do talk about our personal goals and where we are with our goals. And so my kids get to see the ugly of me not meeting my goals. And then they get to see me talking about how I'm going to do better next time. And then, you know, they know that's why they know that the proudest moments of my career have nothing to do with, you know, the New York Times bestseller list. It's all about becoming a better writer and, and learning. See, I've never written anything 
And yet I'm thinking I need to write a book that's a, a New York Times bestseller. That's what I was thinking on my way into the city. <laughs> I was like, how can I get enough people to buy this book that I'm not even working on that, that I've decided is the next thing I'm yeah. supposed to do? Can I announce something cool about this Announce book? everything. I just found out, actually. The Research Society on Alcoholism gave the Addiction Inoculation the Media Award for the year. Amazing. For, for communicating about addiction and prevention. That's so exciting. And I'm very excited. So what happens then? I get to go get an award. When? In June. All at right. At their big conference, at their big dorky conference. Where is and it? I get to hang out. It'll be in Washington, in Bellevue, Washington. In in Washington State. Yeah. Will there be other like big addiction folk there? Yeah, I get I I'm excited because well, I'm going to I'm going to the whole conference because I'm a big geeky freak and uh, there's nothing I love more than going to a big conference and learning from the people who are there. So who are the big addiction folk? Like who would you put on the list? Well, but to see this conference is going to be just about alcoholism specifically. But who are the big addiction folks now? Well, I mean, they're the ones who have all the books in, on the bookshelf. They're the Mayas. Maya Salovitz is brilliant. And David Sheff is out there doing amazing work. And Chris Heron's out there doing amazing work. I mean, if you've never had the opportunity to see Chris Heron talk to kids. We had him on the show. Uh, when you there's uh, Watch the documentary First Day. Yeah, yeah, It's yeah, yeah. online. And I can't explain it without you being there in the room and seeing kids. React to him captivated, transfixed by him. And I cannot, and even the adults in the room are looking around going, I don't really get it. And it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if they get it because it's not about them. Right. The kids get it. Right. And they, I've never seen a reaction like that, especially around this subject matter. You know, you've had all of the big people on here. You've got your Ryan Hamptons and you've got, you know. You like Johan Hari? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who do you not like? Can we bash no, any addiction No, I, I don't people? do that. Let's start bashing addiction I people. I won't do that. Listen, Jessica Leahy, <laughs> you are awesome. I wish we had... Can we bash Dr. Drew? I can't. I won't bash No, people. I love Dr. Drew. Um, uh, he had me on his podcast uh, back when Gift of Failure was on, and I have to give him huge props because he mentioned... Gift of Failure, after he interviewed me, he mentioned Gift of Failure on Armchair Expert, which is one of the reasons I ended up on Armchair Expert, and it was a really fun talk with Dax and Monica, so I actually owe Drew quite a bit. I hugged Dr. Drew, and he, he kind of re repelled himself from me when I hugged him. I don't know if I hugged him. I, I like Dr. Drew. I, I'm friendly with him. Oh, he's a delightful human. His being. apartment is right there. I I, I, he lives down the street, and he's been, he's been very, very kind to me and to our show. We just, I just, I often, when I talk to addiction people, the only person they want to bash is Dr. Drew. Here's the thing about, here's the thing about anyone who is huge in a space. You know, society picks people up, makes them famous. And, and then drops and then, them on their and head. And then drops them on their head and picks apart everything they say. Not saying, you know, he has said some wackadoodle things, but at the same time, if you are putting yourself out there, this is a little bit of that Brene Brown getting getting in the arena stuff, because if you're not out there trying to change things, then shut up. I mean, frankly, if you're not out there doing work and I have made missteps in the media and I have had people come after me and I learned from those mistakes, but I also know that by virtue of the fact that I'm out there saying stuff publicly, I'm going to get shit back. It's just going to happen. I'm going to ruffle feathers. So at a certain point, I have learned that 
A, not everything you hear is true, and B, that, you know, if you're saying a thousand things a day, you know, two or three of those things are going to piss people off. And so I tend not to, unless, unless I have had a very personal experience with someone who has done me dirty, and there are people, there are those people, I try to, I try to stay open-minded about people as much as possible. And I think that's a very smart policy. And I, and I think when we started the show, I thought it would be funny to start beefs with people mm -hmm. who had recovery shows mm -hmm. because obviously they're just out there trying to do good. Right. And I thought it was like a funny concept to bash right. a, a fellow recovery well, person. Well, and I also get the beefs with recovery shows like the interventions and the celebrity rehabs and all that stuff. Is that helping or is that taking advantage of people. If you're taking a photograph of someone who's passed out on the street because they've overdosed and you're and there's a baby crying next to them, yeah, that's going to shock a lot of people. Is it going to change? Is it going to move the needle around, you know, getting people like that help or is it just going to make people feel better than and humiliate the person and the child in that picture? You know, I don't have a lot of patience for shame. I don't have a lot of patience for shaming people for, you know, when they're just trying to live their lives and and do better. Right. And I mean, the whole point of any of it, it's just there's an interesting also line between somebody trying to make money. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Because yeah. we're all trying to yep. make money. We're all trying to entertain. Absolutely. We're all trying to educate. Yeah. And it's it's it becomes this weird, blurred thing. But I, I think uh, this has been really cool. And I, <laughs> I, I would love to bash a lot of people because that's my that's like the bad part of me that I think is entertaining, like the WWF. There's part actually of me. some research on bashing people and on taking a delight in other people's mistakes because it makes you feel better about yourself. Right. If I can point at someone else and say, well, they're they've done that. At least I haven't done that. Then I, and a lot of that happens in recovery, too. You know, like. I wasn't homeless, so I'm better than that guy, you know. I, like, go to my meeting, and I think horrible thoughts, you know, about the people in my meeting. And I love them, but yeah. I still think horrible yeah. thoughts. And uh, you're told not to judge people, right. but you're told to stick with the winners. So it's like yep. there's a guy at my meeting who calls himself Ray the Clamor because he was a clamor. <laughs> I live on Eastern Long Island. And he says, well, I don't judge people, but I take their inventories because yeah. I need to stick with the winners. Yep. Yeah. And, I, and I think like I'm immature a lot of the time. And I want Dopey to be a bastion of immaturity and fun. But I also want it to, you know, be, mm -hmm. a, be an educational, yeah. you know, delight. And I think right. that we, we straddle those worlds and we do our best. And uh, I mean, in, in the, at the rehab, I tell people all the time, you're going to meet people in, in groups that are going to take you down with them. And there are going to be times that you're going to have to draw the line. There was one person in recovery that I kept helping and I kept helping. And then I started realizing just how much I was being lied to and how much I was being manipulated. And I just cut ties. You and that to. person thinks I'm terrible. That person thinks I'm mean and horrible and a fair weather friend. But I had, I could not continue to let myself be taken advantage of and lied to in the way that I was. And that's just a part of making healthy boundaries. Right. It's a thin line. Yeah. Right. You, you sponsor people? No, I'm not right now. No, I'm traveling too much. I'm not in one place very often. I still have stuff. I don't feel ready to be a sponsor yet. I really don't. I feel like I'm still working on stuff and I'm I'm not there yet. I have so much respect for people who are sponsors. I don't think I'm ready yet. I'm sure you're I'm sure you're ready. I'm sure you're I, ready. I'm an informal help get them into recovery kind of person, but in terms of actually working the steps, I don't feel quite ready yet. 
All right. I'm well, still working on my stuff. Well, when you come back, we'll do a step working seminar. <laughs> okay, that would be fantastic. Thank you so much, Jessica. Thank Is you. there anything else? Oh, it, just go find me on Twitter if it still exists by the time this comes out at Jess Leahy. And, um, I think I just paid eight bucks to become Jess Leahy. <laughs> exactly. Well done, you. And on Instagram, I'm at Teacher Leahy. I just followed you. Okay, good. Thanks, Jess. Excellent. All right, so that was Jessica Leahy. It's a long show, but a brilliant woman. And those books, The Addiction Inoculation and The Gift of Failure, are incredible. She is just an incredible person, I think. If you enjoyed Jessica Leahy, please write us at dopeypodcast at gmail.com. If you didn't enjoy her, write us at dopeypodcast at gmail.com. You know, dopey is about a lot of things. Sometimes it's the rock'em sock'em, and sometimes it's the addiction inoculation. But uh, I'm super grateful that Jessica came by, and uh, I loved her books. A lot of people talk shit to me like the show's too long. Do you guys think the show is too long? Are you guys listening at this part of the show? Prove it. Write me an email, dopeypodcast at gmail.com. Write a review. My dad loves to read the reviews. Leave the five-star review, and my dad will read it on the show. I was going to do another voicemail, but it seems too late in the show. I'm not going to do it this late in the show. That's crazy. I also have a really funny story about my dog. And next week, we have a crazy rock'em sock'em as dopey as it gets story. So I hope your Thanksgiving was bountiful. I hope your life is good. I hope you are having a beautiful day or night or whatever. Actually, before we go, I want to talk about gratitude. Who am I grateful for? I'm grateful for Linda. Definitely. I'm grateful for the kids. I'm grateful for my dad, even though he's probably responsible for my heroin addiction. I'm grateful for the dopey nation. I'm grateful to Cormac, the great Cormac who created the dopey Reddit page. I'm grateful for the Redditors who are chilling in obscurity. I'm grateful for the Facebook group and the administrators. I don't know what happened to Andrew, but I think he's out there somewhere. Who knows what he's doing? Uh, fucking what's-her-face Paulina. She used to be very involved, but I'm grateful for her anyway. She reposts all of my posts onto Facebook Dopey Nation. I'm grateful to Canadian Catherine who promised to come to DopeyCon, but she didn't come. But I'm still grateful. You know what? I'm just realizing none of the Facebook administrators came to DopeyCon. Paulina, Andrew, Catherine, and Leah. None of them came to DopeyCon. But I'm grateful to you guys anyway. Who else am I grateful to? The Dopey Street Team. Scott Wick, Liz Ann, and, uh, and, and crazy Edward Alliser, who's just getting it done. He did this very strange graphic of me and Ray's names bound together in a crucifix in blood. It's very odd. But I am grateful to you, Edward. And I'm grateful to Matt Shoemaker. And I'm grateful to good old Matthew Wiedemeyer Carroll. You know he's not fucking listening, but he's still posting pictures of cats. So God bless him. I'm grateful for Roxanne. I'm grateful for Dan Allen Jr. of the Movie Seller Podcast. I'm grateful for so many people out there. I'm grateful for B. Getz. I'm grateful for Jed of Church and Other Drugs. I'm grateful for our old friend Bob Forrest and his team at Don't Die. I'm just grateful. I'm grateful for Soba Sisters. I'm grateful to Sober Buddy. I'm grateful to everybody. So that's my, if I didn't mention you, I'm grateful for you anyway. Who did I not mention? Oh, that motherfucker, benevolent bandit who got angry at me for asking for interns. I'm grateful for you.
benevolent bandit. I don't really think you're a motherfucker. I'm just kidding. I'm grateful to Justin England. I'm grateful to uh, X uh, Graves. What's his name? Splintered Space. I'm grateful to Hot Wheels, who's doing very well, I understand. I'm grateful to Steph Roberts. I'm grateful to Pete Wiggins, who fucking put time in listening to dopies before I put them up. I'm grateful to Nat Kingsley, who does so much helping hands on the show. I shouldn't even mention his podcast this late in the in our podcast, but his podcast is called Middle Ages Recovery. So check out Nat when you can. It's a lot of gratitude. What else am I grateful for? Grateful for Katz's. You know who I'm really grateful for? My dog, Winnie. Winnie loves me more than anyone has ever loved me. It's amazing. Linda always said she wanted to experience the love of the dog. I've never had love the way Winnie gives me love. It's crazy. Anyway, that's it for me. Stay strong, Dopey Nation. If I didn't mention you guys, just know that I'm still grateful. Grateful for you even if you're Canadian, especially if you're Canadian. There's actually a girl who just wrote me who's, uh, she wants to be an intern and she's Canadian. Do you want to hear that? I'm going to read you the email. What the hell? If you guys want to be interns, you should, you should totally write me an email. I'm looking for uh, publicity interns, production interns, design interns, art interns, promotion interns. Here, I'm going to read you. Her name is Claire. And she's Canadian. Here we go. Hey, Dave. I found your show while dating an addict, alcoholic, general SMI 23-year-old. It is a pretty sad story for someone so young to be so helpless and hopeless in their own future. I started listening to Understand Better, but we, not so surprisingly, eventually broke up. I went to Al-Anon for a bit to try to help me with the constant worrying and helplessness I felt. And although I am thankful for the meetings, I don't think anything has helped me as much as Dopey. Nice. While I was dating him, I was listening to the newer episodes for the recovery talk and inside and into the mind of an addict. However, when we broke up, I just needed a good distraction and a good laugh, and I decided to listen from episode number one. I see a lot of my ex in Chris, his people-pleasing, his softness, and all the potential he had. My ex is by no means pursuing a doctorate. He is currently a drug dealer and not a really good one. But despite Chris's tragic death, he still gives me hope that if someone who spent most of their life uh, oblivion-seeking could get sober and start building a future for himself, maybe one day my addict can turn his life around too. I just needed to know that it wasn't too late for my addict and that his life eventually could get better, and Chris gave me that. I am reaching out because I love the podcast so much, and I want to help you make it your full-time job. I would love to intern at Dopey, and help you with outreach advertisements and other dumb shit. I have experience working at an early stage of a startup where I managed cold calls, customer outreach, and market research. I currently work full-time, but I could take on projects and get them to you in an allotted time frame of a week, month, depending on the task. I'm hoping to move to New York City next year for school, so if that works out, I could take on a bigger role. Plus, I am a Canadian, so I wouldn't be able to get paid for work the first year of my student visa, a.k.a. there would not be a better way to spend my time than working for Dopey. Regardless of if you're still looking for interns or not, I really do want to thank you for making something so special and brightening my day. 
You and Chris made my life so much more manageable at such an unmanageable time, and for that I am forever grateful. Toodles, Claire. I love that email, Claire. Thank you. And yes, I would be honored if you were our first ever Canadian intern. And if you want to be an intern, if you're from Canada or Mexico or Nicaragua or El Salvador, oh, I'm grateful for Senor Dios Mio. I'm grateful for Aaron Carr. I'm grateful for Dopey Dress. I'm grateful for Mike Mart. The list of gratitude just endless, endless gratitude. Who did I not mention? I'm sure there's people I should be thinking of that I'm not thinking of. I'm grateful to Suki for that remarkable dopey voicemail at the beginning of the show. I'm grateful to all of you. That's it. Stay strong, dopey nation, and fucking toodles for Chris. All right, I'm going to play this song, but only because uh, I think it'll make me look a little bit very tired. I'm just going to start it.
It's a fucking great song. You like this? I really, really like it. You do? And you know I like... And you do tell me you didn't like it. Yeah. I'm really sure you can relate to the calling your dad part. <laughs> Dude, it's just really good. Like, where did you write, when did you write that? I like the lyrics. I hope they...